Well, welcome back, everybody. It's Wednesday night. Hey, you're welcome, whoever said thank you. Is that Dana? I appreciate when Dana talks, even when uh, he amens, uh, amens about me being a baby in the pulpit. No, it's good. We're excited you're here. It's, it's a, it is a new year. We're glad to be back here on Wednesday night. I always miss. I know uh, it's been the holidays the last few weeks, so uh, I'm sure most were busy, but uh, I always miss being together. It's weird to me not to be. And I guess maybe that's because I am not just a pastor, but a pastor's kid, so I don't really know that I've ever lived life not being at church on a Wednesday night, so... Uh, it's just just part of it. So glad to be back. Glad it's a new year. Glad it's the same God with the same word. So uh, we're going to be diligent to jump in as we do this. So let's let, let's dive in and then we'll uh, we'll come to prayer here in a minute. Uh, we've been walking through. So let me just remind you, we've been walking through uh, the New Testament. We've been walking through the Gospels. And very specifically, we've been trying to walk through what if we're going to be academic, we would call a harmony of the Gospels. And I, I tell you that term because you can actually find, I've got several in my office, you can actually find a books called a Harmony of the Gospels, where they take all four Gospels and arrange all the passage in, passages in a chronological order like what we've been, been walking through. Um, and uh, now, obviously, you want to make sure you get a reputable source of the harmony of the Gospels. I'm sure there's some that would tag that on there that would be filled with all sorts of stuff that's not in the Gospels. But uh, for simple terms, we're just walking through the life of Christ chronologically as best we can. And so where we left off prior to hitting the break uh, is we left off at the end of what we call uh, Jesus's Galilean ministry, which is probably the bulk of um, when, when we think of where Jesus ministers, we think of it around Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. These are where so many of the great miracles take place, the feeding of the 5,000, uh, where, where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. And we walked through, really, there's three major um, movements or uh, three major time periods, aspects to that Galilean ministry. And we finished with the third of those. Uh, which, which really sees Jesus begin to move up, if you remember, into some of these, these Gentile regions as he begins to move into where we'll pick up tonight, uh, which is probably about halfway into what will be the last year of his life prior to the cross. And in this year, he's, he's got a, a commitment to uh, walking with his, specifically the 12 disciples, really investing, making sure they're prepared for what's going to take place. And we find ourselves, uh, again, he uses some more maps that are that. We find ourselves tonight coming to what uh, you might hear some call the latter ministry of Jesus or Jesus's latter Judean ministry and his Perean ministry. And if you go, what on earth is Perea? Uh, Perea is this region up here. Judea is this region down here. This is going to be this last uh, this last period before we see Jesus come to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, entering into the Passion Week. Uh, of all the periods of Jesus's ministry, this period is the most difficult to try to organize chronologically. Uh, it's the most difficult. So again, when we say we're doing this chronologically, if one day we get before Jesus and one of you says, Jesus, will you tell me your life story? And he tells you something in a different order than I told you. Well, I'm not claiming that this is the exact order. Everything in here happened the way it says it happened. 
But this is our best attempt at trying to put things together where they took place. And so if you will, it's going to be in this uh, in this season, if you will, we're going to pick up where I'd like for us to pick up is in John chapter seven. Gospel of John chapter seven. John chapter 7 is actually where we ended up at the end of that ministry. He's coming to the end of that third section of his Galilean ministry. It says in chapter 7, verse 1, And John, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he is unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Enough of his teachings have caused enough anger and ire with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. Remember, uh, prior to this, we're going we're gonna to have that, that, and especially in John's gospel, that confrontation with the Jews after the feeding of the 5,000, where they want to take him by force, make him, make him a political king who's going to deliver them from Rome. They're going to take him by force, and he then uh, hacks them all off by telling them what he's actually about, which is not delivering them from Rome, but delivering them from their own Sin. So he is, uh, he's up here, uh, in, actually north of Samaria in Galilee. He's not coming down here because they're trying to kill him. It's not that he's afraid to die, but it's not his time. Now the Feast of the Jews, uh, that is the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was near. So his brothers, these would be his biological half-brothers, one of whom would be... James, who we've been walking through the letter that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write on Sundays. So James is one of these who's going to come antagonize and say, uh, Jesus, move on from here. Go down there to Judea so that your disciples may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he is striving to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now, on one hand, you stop there and you go, well, it kind of sounds like the brothers are saying, Jesus, stop hiding yourself. Look at verse five. For not even his brothers believed in him. So they're not trying to say, hey, go. They're like, you're nuts. Why don't you go out there and promote yourself even more? He says, my time is not yet come. And ultimately, it says, having said these things, he stayed in Galilee. The brothers went up to the Feast of Booths. Now, the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, uh, of the Jewish festivals, there were three that were major festivals. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the one that was the most popular for the Jewish people. And it was... Uh, it was associated, it was six months prior to Passover. Uh, so, where this puts us, John chapter 7, we're in that last year of Jesus' life. This is taking place six months prior to the crucifixion. Saying six months prior uh, to, to uh, when the time will come for Jesus to uh, lay down his life. And in this, in this uh, festival, it surrounds a harvest time. Uh, they, will, they will go out around Jerusalem and out on, in those valleys and, and, and hillsides, and they will set up um, booths made of twigs and, and, and dwellings to live in to remember the time that Israel was in the wilderness due to their own sin, but God was faithful to protect them, to lead them, to provide for them. Remember, it was in that time in the wilderness that God provided manna from heaven in the form of food, and God would miraculously provide water. And part of this festival, one of the key moments that it would build up to is in absolute silence, the priest taking water and, and pouring it out to remember. And remember, all these festivals are designed to do two things. They're, in many ways, uh, they're designed to remember God, some aspect of God, His character's faithfulness. And what we also find is they are all pointing forwards 
to the one who is the fulfillment of what those things are. And so it's into this, into this moment, it says, look at this. Uh, Jesus, when his brothers went up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but secretly. For the Jews were looking him, where, where is he? And others were talking. No one was speaking openly about him for fear of the Jews. So there's all this hushed. I mean, I just, I love some of the simple statements you overlook in the Bible. If, if we were there that, that, that time, you know, uh, hey, you hear, you hear about Jesus? And then you see, you know, oh, we're going to be quiet. I mean, it's just as people hadn't changed. Uh, it's, like, it's like middle school gossip going on. Now, in the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple area and began to teach. So you can imagine the tension. The Jews have been looking for him. They're trying to kill him. Uh, There's been all these whispers. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the feast, in the middle of the week, boom, he shows up. And he doesn't just show up. He walks into the epicenter of it all, up into the temple. They were astonished. That's an understatement. How uh, How can this man be so learned? Not having been educated, so Jesus answered them. He said, my teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it is from God or I am speaking from myself. And so they begin to have all of this, this back and forth, yet again, another argument that is centering on who Jesus is. So then it says this, drop down with me to verse 25. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this man not the one whom they are seeking to kill? And yet look, He is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him, right? Because no one can respond back to him. No one can rebuttal what he's actually saying. Then he says, however, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from, which is a slight twisting and irony, right? We know where this man is from. He's from Galilee. We won't know where the Messiah comes from, even though we know the Old Testament scriptures say he'll be born in Bethlehem and he'll grow up in Galilee and he'll come from, he'll spend some time in Egypt. We don't know where he'll come from. And I'll say that for something coming up here in a bit, but then Jesus cried out in the temple, you both know me and you know where I'm from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Uh, I do know him because I am from him. He sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. Now drop with me back here to verse 37. So all this time, about halfway through the feast, all of a sudden it's gone from just a good old fashioned feast of tabernacles to we got, we got some fireworks going off. And we're about to go for the finale here in verse 37. Now on the last day of the, uh, the great day of the feast, the day where the priest would take that water and pour it out, Jesus stood in the midst of that quiet and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scriptures say, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The one who who provided you water in the desert, I am he. That's, that's what he's saying in effect here. He is claiming messiahship for himself. You're going to see that there is then division over him, uh, over what he says. Uh, look with me here at uh, verse 45. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees. They said, why do you not bring him? They said, never has a man spoken in this way. The Pharisees then replied to them, you have, you have not been led astray too, have you? Not one of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him, has he? But the crowd does not know the law is a curse. Nicodemus, remember back John chapter 3, he's going to make a statement. 
And they say this, they answered to him and said that Nicodemus, because Nicodemus seems to try to push back on him, you're not from Galilee aware as, as well, are you? Basically, you're, you're not from his neck of the woods sticking up for him. Examine the scriptures. See that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Examine the scriptures, you foolhardy Nicodemus. No prophet comes out of Galilee. Okay, now jump with me to chapter 8, verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Pharisee says, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now let's pause for a second. Remember several of the things that have been said here. When the Christ comes, we won't know where he comes from. We know where you come from. You come from Galilee. Nicodemus, you're sticking up from him, aren't you? Are you from Galilee too? Are you one of his buddies? We know if you search the scriptures that no prophet comes from Galilee. Listen to and realize the irony and the unbelievable pride that was keeping them. Listen to Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times, God treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Where's that great light come from? Galilee. So you realize what's going on. Jesus is again, Jesus cannot. Um, on one hand, you go, why didn't Jesus just say literally the statement, I am God? Well, ironically, he actually does here in John chapter 8. But you really can't be much more clear in Jesus trying to say, I am, I am telling you all of the Old Testament and I am showing you it is fulfilled. I am he. And so there goes into this. And of course, you get in here to, to chapter eight and, and, and really chapter seven, chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10 are gonna be various uh, debates and various, um, you're gonna get some of the most um, probably memorable to some of us pronouncements. I am, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Uh, are going to come in these chapters, but all of these chapters are going to follow a similar pattern. There's either a teaching and then controversy or a miracle and then controversy or a display of forgiveness and controversy and, and debate going back and forth. And, and in these debates, uh, look at what it says here with me in, uh, well, we'll just, we'll just go to verse 31. So Jesus, Jesus was saying to the Jews who believed him, if you continue in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. By the way, it's a great reminder for all of, all of today. It's a great reminder for the fact that all of us are inundated every day with lies, lies from our culture, uh, lies our own mind can twist us into thinking, lies from the enemy in terms of temptation, lies that promise freedom because of whatever pleasure they seek to tempt us with. But Jesus is very clear. There will never be freedom and pleasure. Freedom comes from truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And of course, this then begins an argument. We're Abraham's descendants. And I just think this is funny. We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What about that time in Egypt? What about that time to Assyria? What about that time to Egypt again? What about that time to Babylon? What about that time to Persia? What about that time to Greece? What about right then and there to Rome? Don't know, but 
Jesus answered, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If the son sets you free, you will really be free. So now we're moving. You will know the truth. The truth will set you free. The son is going to be the one to set you free. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are seeking to kill me because my word is no place in you. I speak of things which I heard from my father. You do the same thing which you heard from your father. Then they answered to him and said, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Now remember, just for theology part, let's pause there. What does Paul say that Abraham's deed was? By faith, Abraham was justified. What's the ultimate deed of Abraham? How is Abraham pictured throughout scripture? He's pictured as a friend of God. Why? Because God told him something and he believed it. Doesn't mean that all of a sudden he was perfect, but he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So he's saying, if you're Abraham's children, why aren't you believing what I say? He says, you're seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing the deeds of your father. He said to Jesus, we're not born as a result of sexual morality. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. Verse uh, 43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot listen to my word. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth within him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I say the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? The one who is of God hears the word of God. For this reason, you do not hear him. Hear them because you are not of God. I mean, and, and, and again, I think just reading, you can, you, can, uh, you can feel the tension, the sharpness, but I don't even think that picks up on what it would be if we were there in person. As Jesus is rebuking people who've made, I mean, you imagine, let's, let's put it this way. Let's, let's, let's put it this way. Let's, let's, let's have all of us who've grown up in church and let's, take, let's go hang out at seminary with all the theologians and pastors who have come out of seminary and let's have Jesus show up and go, hey, let me put you in your place. You're actually not of the Lord at all. You're of the devil because you're a bunch of liars. Uh, would, that would cause quite a stir, should cause quite a stir. And also, and I'll just remind you, it tells you something too about the reality of our enemy here. Let's just remind for all of us, he's a murderer. The enemy has one desire, and it is to see human beings die. Die spiritually, die eternally. Personally think it's because when God made man in his image, unique in the relationship that that gives humankind with God. And when Satan tried to become more powerful than God and couldn't, I think, I think there is a jealous hatred of humankind, which is why from the beginning, it has been Satan's goal to, to twist truth. And always remember, 99.9% .9 true is 100% lie. Satan knows God's word better than probably most of us. He quotes it. He had the audacity to quote God's own word to God, tempting God in the flesh to sin. So do not forget for a second that when we walk in 99.9% .9 truth, I'm not saying we're walking quite literally with Satan. I am saying it puts us in a place of acting like the enemy and buying into lies. And we better make sure that what we believe, how we move, how we breathe, even what we say, this says the Lord and thus not says the Lord, really does line up with every aspect of his truth.
And we better remember that we have an enemy that wants our destruction, that wants the destruction of every person in society, that wants an absolute destruction. If you're in Christ, he can't destroy you eternally, but he will do everything he can to destroy you in this world, to keep you from knowing the joy that is rightfully yours in Christ and the reward that God would desire to give for a faithful life lived. If you're not in Christ or know someone not in Christ, and he's not just after you to, to tamp you down, he is after complete and total destruction, which is why it says in Corinthians, he blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. Now, I love where this goes. They're going to come back after him, and, he's going to, and they're going to really pick on the Abraham stuff. And Jesus says in verse 56, your father Abraham was overjoyed he would see my day, which that's what Hebrews chapter 11 says, that Abraham wasn't just looking for a physical place that God was promising, but he was looking ahead to an eternal city, to, uh, to uh, to God's promise to the Messiah, your father Abraham was overjoyed he would see my day. He saw it and he rejoiced. And the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50. And you have seen Abraham, of course, understand they're trying to be snarky. Abraham was alive several thousand years prior to Christ. You're not just there, you're not even 50. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, there's two layers to this statement that I love. Before Abraham was born, past tense. I am present tense. Not I was. I am. I'm physically in front of you right now. Oh, and by the way, I am present before Abraham was ever born. But even bigger than that, understand to these Jews, what did God reveal to Moses at the burning bush when he said, when Moses said, who will I tell your people has sent me? I am. I tell you before Abraham was born, I am. There is no clearer, more direct statement when someone says, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, baloney. You can't more claim to be God than say, I am. Which is why, look at the reaction of the Jews. They didn't go, well, you're crazy. You can't presently be here and exist before Abraham. Notice what they do. Before they, pick, they picked up stones to throw at him, why'd they pick up stones? Because the capital punishment blasphemy was stoning. Jesus hid himself and left the temple grounds. Uh, there's so much in this, in this section. We've jumped right over the fact the beginning of chapter 8 records this instance where the Pharisees, they catch, a, uh, catch a, a woman caught in the act of adultery, and they're trying to trap Jesus. Will Jesus show compassion and therefore violate the law and make him a sinner? Will he stone her and therefore make him both a violation of Roman law and probably look bad to the populace? And of course, Jesus stoops down. And there's all sorts of debate. What did Jesus write? Here's the honest truth. We don't know what Jesus wrote. Not saying you can't have fun with your speculation, just keep it soundly biblical, but we don't really know what Jesus wrote. Doesn't say it, just says he wrote in the dust. Whatever he wrote, act him off, and he stands up, and of course he said, he who's without sin, let him throw the first stone. Well, how does Jesus think about those men? Oh, wait, wait. How does Jesus say that God defines adultery? I'll tell you, if you've had a lustful thought in your heart, you're an adulterer. So all of you guys over here, who've never committed the physical act of adultery, you, you're adulterers because not one of you have ever been without a lustful thought of who's without sin, pick up the first stone, and of course they can't do it. So that's in there. We find in, 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 in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, and there's some great truths in this, one of which is the man born blind, his disciples say, well, Jesus, whose sin was it? This man has a physical infirmity that costs him, according to our perspective, quality of life. Whose fault? His parents or his? And Jesus says, neither Neither. This man was born blind because God wanted to do something to glorify his name through it. 
which tells us that a lot of the things, and especially with relating to physical body and quality of life and things, our world is quickly moving further and further to this idea. If you are not in flawless, perfect physical health, quality of life, your life is not valuable. Well, that goes out the window here. Because God fearfully and wonderfully made and knit a man to be born blind. That decades into his life, the son of man would come by and would heal him to continue to demonstrate that the Messiah gives sight to the blind. It also tells us this. You're going to have bad things happen. In this case, bad things happen to your body. It could be because you do something dumb in sin. If you want to go out and live your life being a drunkard and clear violation of the word of God, you're probably going to do something really bad to your body. And therefore, the badness in your body is a consequence of your sin. But this also tells you you're going to have some things that go wrong physically, you or people you love. And there are preachers out there who will say, well, that, God's will is that you automatically... Well, this tells us that sometimes God's will is to allow us to suffer physically and use it for his glory. Which also means this, because I realize the majority of this room is on the opposite side of 50 from me. Do not ever think, as you grow older, and just stereotypically speaking, the older we get, the more the body hurts and falls apart. <laughs> and I'm not picking, I'm just trying to be real practical here tonight. Do not ever think for a second, whatever physical limitation you have is a damper to God being able to use your life for his glory. And we can go on and on and on, but we don't have time. I'm not supposed to preach a whole sermon through that passage. I'm supposed to keep trucking and look at the whole thing. But here's what I also love. I love this statement because as this happens, you know, everybody knows this guy. We know that guy's blind. There's no mistake. And this guy's the town blind man. And now he sees. We know he wasn't faking. We've seen him for years. And so, of course, they, the Pharisees bring this man in front of them. They bring this parents man in front of them. And his parents, they try to chicken out because of the consequences of of believing. And I love the statement of this man. Remember, because this man doesn't actually know it's Jesus who heals him. Love this. Verse 24, John chapter nine. So for a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus, the man who healed him must be a sinner. And they're saying, hey, you need, you need to give glory to God and say that what this man did was wrong. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. There's no greater testimony to the salvation of Jesus Christ in our life. I can't answer everything, but this I can tell you. I was once dead, now I'm alive. I was once blind, now I see. I was once hopeless, now I have hope. And of course, Jesus comes and there's a great conversation between, between he and Jesus. You see in John chapter 10 and all of these really back up into the same beginning period, John chapter 10, the conversation about the good shepherd and Jesus mentions that, that the door and, and the idea of hired shepherds. Of course, you've got the statement, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy. Again, reiterating what is the aim? Our, our true battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. What's the aim? To steal, kill and destroy. Utter destruction which is why every sinful pattern of behavior, and we live in a day and age where that's, whether, that, whether that, that sinful pattern of behavior is, is the party crowd, whether it's, it's, it's 
um, sexual promiscuity, whether it's to transform one's sexuality or, 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 uh, or attempt to transform one's gender and, and all, all, uh, all sin, I don't care what it is, even if it's just simply greed and trying to cheat the IRS so you get more money, all sin stills, kills, and destroys. It does not give life, though it may feel pleasurable in a moment. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He mentioned, you know, shepherd hired shepherds. If, if, if somebody came to kill the flock, most of them would flee because they don't own the flock. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. One, you don't get into the shepherd, the, the pen. I, I'm the good shepherd. The true shepherd comes through the door, implying the only way you get in the flock of God is through me. There's an exclusivity there. All, ro- all roads don't lead to God. Only Jesus' road leads to God. Not only that, but he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay my life down for the sheep. Uh, Flip with me over here, uh, Luke chapter 10, Gospel of Luke chapter 10. In this season, in this latter Judean and Perean ministry, we're going to see Luke chapter 10, which is where Jesus is going to send out the 70 uh, 70 of his disciples to do ministry. He's going to give them instructions. And again, we don't have time to go in depth in all of this, but there are two simple things that I want to point out as we as we walk through this. He tells them uh, in John chapter 10, or sorry, Luke chapter 10, verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off and protest against you, yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. He mentions to wipe the dust off their feet. Here is why I point that out. Jesus gave instructions to these 70 to go, to proclaim the message of the kingdom. But he also was very clear with them that not everybody would accept that message. And so I just want to remind us, because I think there is sometimes a tendency in American ministry life that if we just somehow get the message correct, well, everybody would believe. Well, yeah, I mean, common sense, if you really know Jesus had been transformed, why wouldn't everybody believe? It's the best news that there is. But reality is we live in a world that the message of the cross is an absolute offense to because it says you by your own very nature are in rebellion against God and you need to be saved from, in some ways, yourself in the sense of you're your own worst problem, that you're a sinner and you're guilty. It's an offensive message and we just need to remember that not everybody will believe lest we go down a road where in thinking that if we just got it right, everybody would respond, we actually twist the gospel away from being the gospel. And we just turned into some form of self-help therapy. I'm not saying, listen, if someone walks away from the gospel, it should be because they are offended by Jesus and the gospel, not because of our tone or the stupidity of our speech. But also understand, if you present the gospel in the most perfect way possible like Christ, have we not seen? People are going to reject it. And that shouldn't cause us all of a sudden to question whether or not Jesus is really the Christ. If anything, it ought to be a proof. Yeah, it's exactly how Jesus says it was going to be. Not only that, but when they come back, they come back, Lord, the demons even are subject in your name. And and Jesus says, yeah, I watched Satan fall from heaven. But then look at this verse 20. Nevertheless, I know you just experienced all this incredible movement of God. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in what you were part of doing, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. I give you this. 
Because there's also a tendency, and this is very real in my life. I think, I, I think anybody vocationally in ministry, this is very real too. But I think if you have a heart and passion in your life to honor God and fulfill the ministry God has entrusted to you in this life, the ministry of your family, the ministry in your workplace, the ministry uh, in the local church, you have a heart to worship. There is a, always a danger to find your identity and thus your joy in what you do. And Jesus is really clear. Hi, listen, yes, I'm with you. I'm with you, 70. Praise God, some awesome stuff happened. But don't let that be where your joy is from. Your joy is in not what God uses you to do. Your joy is in the fact that your name is written in the book of life, that you are known by name by the Father, that you know the Father as the Father. That's where your joy is, something we'll, we'll actually look at a little bit more this Sunday uh, as we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, so there, as, as you walk through Luke chapter 10, of course, you're going to see the, 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 the parable of the Good Samaritan. Got a man in between Jerusalem and Jericho, which was a perilous road, which... Uh, uh, robbers, man, uh, beaten. You're going to see the, the, the priest and the Levite, the professional clergy of their day, uh, ignore for a variety of reasons and trying to answer who is your neighbor. Of course, then Jesus speaks about the Samaritan who comes, who by virtue of culture should hate the Jewish man on the side of the road. But rather than hating him, in mercy and grace, attends to him, cares for him, pays for it all out of his pocket, gets absolutely nothing in return, provides a beautiful illustration of what grace and mercy is in action. And of course, the stinging reality for the Jews who asked, who is your neighbor, is Jesus paints the picture of the great neighbor as the Samaritan, whom the Jews would hate. Be like rewinding the clock 50 years and going in the thick of A&M's campus and telling the parable about how two good core guys walked past the man and the UT guy picked him up and took care of him. Or inverse that and rechange it, whatever you want to do. You get, you get it, but a lot more intense. And what Jesus does in showing it, remember what is the summation, of, what are the, in, in what way are the law and the prophets fulfilled in a person's life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what flows out of that is the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor. Not just love your brother and sister in Christ, that takes an added dimension in terms of, yes, absolutely, but love your neighbor, which is going to include people who are brothers and sisters in Christ who like you. It's going to include brothers and sisters in Christ who don't like you. It's going to include, include lost people that you enjoy and are okay with you. It's going to include lost people that absolutely hate your guts. It's going to include people like you. It's going to include people not like you. It's going to include people that you get along with where well. It's going to include people that annoy you. Love God, love your neighbor. He pictures this in the Good Samaritan, but not only this, but then as I, as I was just making notes today, Jesus gives this parable, but then go one step further. A Samaritan saw a man badly injured on the side of the road and acted in grace and mercy to help that man. How much more grand is that fulfilled in Jesus Christ who saw all of humankind not just battered and broken but absolutely in rebellion and hatred to Him who came in grace and mercy, stooped down to our level, 
and went even further, let us batter and beat him to then by his own blood and his own stripes bring healing we need and yet do not deserve and cannot earn. So much there. In this season, we're gonna, you're going to walk through, if you're walking through the season, and we're going to meet Mary and Martha. And of course, Martha is busy, busy taking care of the dishes, and Mary's sitting there listening to Jesus. And we're reminded that sometimes uh, more activity is not good, that what's needed is to hear the Word of God and follow. Uh, we see various parables on prayers. Woe on the Pharisees. Of course, here in, in Luke chapter 12, he'll tell the parable of the, the rich fool, who, who I believe, I, at least I intended to allude to this, this past Sunday, as we talked about, if the Lord wills, you know, the rich fool who, who comes into an inheritance and said, I'm going to, I've got plenty of time. I'm going to build these barns and fill them with this. And then the Lord says, oh, what, what a, what a foolish man. He doesn't know that that very night his life will be taken. And the parables on greed, but it applies both to greed and to how we use our times. Um, in this time, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see Jesus mentioned in Luke chapter 13. If I can get my pages to turn here, Luke chapter 13 I also should probably never change out my Bible from the one I use on Sunday mornings to one with a smaller font. I'll say, you're going to get in this period where Jesus is going to make the statement here in Luke 13, narrow is the way. Few are those who find it. Again, implying, and this, is, this, this comes perfectly into Luke chapter 14 with the cost of discipleship, the real reality is it is a miracle and a wonder that any one of us in this room ever believed the gospel. It is even more a wonder and amazement that our God is so good that upon the belief, repentance and belief of the gospel, he stoops down in his grace and saves us. Because the real reality is Jesus is clear Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and that's where most people are going to be. Narrow is the path. It's exclusive. It's singular. It's offensive to your, to your sinful humanity, but it leads to life. In this season, in, the, in this period as well, um, he's going to make this, this statement. Look with me, Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Now Jesus began tearing, telling a parable about invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the, uh, began telling a parable to invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, whenever you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited. And the one who invited you uh, both will come and say to you, give up your place. And then in disgrace, you will proceed to go to the last place. When you're invited, go take the last place. So when the one who is invited to you comes, he will say, move up, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in all the sight. And he says this, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, uh, I won't have you turn there, but, but later on in this, in this period of ministry, you're going to have, um, you are going to have, and I, why, uh, you're going to have there in Matthew and Mark and Luke, back in Luke 18, you're going to see James and John. Lord, when you come, give us the places of honor at your right and left hand. And you're going to see Jesus very clear in this passage. And Jesus is not just trying to give you like a really good social piece of advice right here, by the way. Right? Like one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever learned in high school is, is this. Last in line for firsts is always first in line for seconds. 
If you want to know how to church potluck, how to get as much food as you want, look real humble, let everybody go in front of you. Because if you're the last in line for first, you are automatically the first in line for seconds. And you don't have to get told, sorry, only two pieces of pizza until we see if we got enough for everybody. Everybody's got their two pieces of pizza. I can have as much as I want. And we always would joke about that. There's truth in that statement. We're like, yeah, man, it makes you look really humble. And that, you know. that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. He is trying to make a statement, right? Because you could take it that way. Oh, hey, you know, don't, don't sit at the most highest honor. Go sit at the least place. That way there's only, there's only one way to go. It's up. Unless you really are the least distinguished guest and then you're just stuck there. Uh, and you evaluated yourself correctly. Jesus is trying to make a point about humility. And we've seen that theme in James. And I just want to remind all of us, this life is not about us. Life is not about you. And it's not about me. But let's go a step further. This church is not about you. And it's not about me. This church is not about, and I, and I use this specifically, I'm trying to make it specific to us, but don't think I'm coming after anybody. I'm not, try, I'm not, I'm not that specific. But we joke, right? Oh, don't sit in that seat. That's that person's seat. Well, listen, if you want to pay a regularly monthly fee to put your name on that seat like the olden days, we'll talk. <laughs> but as best I can tell, Nobody's names are in those pews and they're on these seats in here. You don't have a seat that you deserve to sit. And if someone else sits in it, you're going to kick them out and treat them ugly. We got a big worship center. The songs we sing aren't about you and aren't about me. Oh my goodness. And I've seen it in the old and the young. So I'm picking on both and the middle-aged. The only ones I don't see it in are in the preschoolers, who if anybody should be that immature, it's the preschoolers. <laughs> well, I just, I, just, I, just can't worship it. I just can't worship at that church because of that music. It's too slow. It's too fast. It's too old. It's too new. I'm sorry. Do we sing those songs of worship to worship Jesus or to satisfy what we want in a song? Because if it's to satisfy what I want in a song, that is the height of arrogance and it is not worship. I, we can go on and on. Oh man, I mean, again, I, I, I am a pastor's kid. I am a pastor's grandkid. I'm a pastor's great-grandkid. I'm a pastor's great-great-grandkid. Nobody has grown up in as much church as me. I can come up with a million examples of church. But don't miss the, church, the point, church family. It's not about us. It's about him. And we exist as a church family, whatever songs we sing, whatever, whatever way we structure the flow of worship and worship, whatever, whatever we do in the summer to reach kids, VBS or this, or whatever we do on Wednesday nights, the way, what we do, we do at the Lord's leading for his glory to make disciples of people, both to continue disciple believers and to reach people who are lost and see them come to faith in Christ. That's why we do what we do. It's not about us. And if, if we don't truly live in that kind of humility, we will die as a church. And that's binding for any church in any place. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's going to be in this, in this season, you get a lot of, the, lot of uh, the real short parables, like the lost sheep that God has won. When, I mean, and you think about, I mean, you think how incredible that is. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. I, I, 
You think about how incredible it is that God has created billions of people. Yet the parable of the lost sheep says there's not one person who does not know Christ that Christ does not actively seek to pursue. Doesn't mean they'll respond. There's not one person lost on God. And I think you can take that further safely as a believer. I don't care if you're not Billy Graham. God's eye is just as much on you as it is Billy Graham. Because God is a God who goes after the lost sheep. God is a God who goes after people. You find in here, I mean, the, the, the prodigal son. And by the way, the prodigal son should remind us that if ever as a believer we have fallen into sin, when you come and you turn to the Lord and you acknowledge whatever you've been doing sin and you repent of that, if you feel shame after that, it is not from God. It is from the enemy trying to mess with you and jack it up because the prodigal son, he doesn't even get down the driveway before the father runs out in joy to him. We need to remember these truths. We find in this place in Luke chapter 17, we see very clearly Jesus says, if anyone makes one of these little ones stumble, it'd be better for a millstone to be hung around his neck. By the way, if you've ever seen a real millstone, you would die if it was hung around your neck. You wouldn't even have to hit the water. You'd just be dead. Which is also a reminder uh, elsewhere, Jesus with the disciples, hey, you know, Jesus is busy teaching little kids. Don't go up to him. It's fascinating to me, right? Little kids loved Jesus. And little kids don't like creepy or mean people. But little kids flock to Jesus. And it's interesting to me, to G here's Jesus with the most important agenda anybody's ever had in human history. Don't you dare keep those kids from coming to me. Don't go take those kids and send them out there and, and, and just because, because someone's crying their kid. And again, I mentioned, I, mean, uh, I appreciate when parents are sensitive in church and if a kid's crying, taking them out because sometimes it, it can jack with my mind or not. But I also want to be really clear. We will never, as a church, vilify a family for bringing their child to church and go, I can't believe that kid's crying. Well, praise God that kid's in church and not sitting at home. And maybe some of those, if it really bugs us, get up and go say, hey, can, can I take your kid out in the hallway so you can actually hear the sermon? You poor sleep-deprived parent. Someone apologized to me for falling asleep in church on Sunday, and I said, oh, it's okay. I said, God knows if he didn't call me to be a pastor, I'd fall asleep every Sunday because I can't stay awake sitting still. So this is the only way I'm ever going to hear the word. Uh, but it's just interesting, the things you see as Jesus moves, as you walk through the Gospels and as Jesus moves into this last period before he goes to, and we'll look at the week of Passion next week and you'll see, I mean, with the exception of one day, it is, it is crammed full of both theological teaching, of action, of all of this. It is interesting to me as you walk through this latter period, you see Jesus teaching on humility, the passion of God to go after and seek and save the lost. You see his, his passion for children. You see, uh, you, see the, uh, um, you see the raising of Lazarus from the dead. I mean, you talk about the ultimate miracle, which by the way, that's the miracle according to John 11, that after Jesus raises a dead man who's been dead for four days, whose body's already rotting, they can smell it, raises him from life. All of the Jews don't go, holy smokes, God. That's actually the moment the Pharisees go, done deal, we're killing him. 
It's in here that you see the rich young ruler. Jesus, I've scrupulously kept the law. What must I do to be in heaven? Well, go sell everything you have. And of course, the rich young ruler walks away, saddened. By the way, it also says in there that Jesus looked upon him with compassion. We see a love for a man, even a man who rejects Christ. And of course, this period will end in Luke 19 with a, with a parable of the pounds or parable of the talents. It's going to be in this period, Jesus meets, heals the blind man Bartimaeus on the road. Jesus is going to meet with Zacchaeus and you have the parable of the talents, the ten minus, where the, where the nobleman entrusts five and two and one. And of course, the one with five goes out and puts it to work, gets ten. The one with two goes and puts it to work, gets four. And then the one with one goes, ah, my master's harsh, my master's tough. I'm going to bury it. I'm going to do nothing. Of course, when the master comes back, the one with five says, hey, I put it to work, here's ten. The one with two, I put it to work, here's four. And with one said, hey, I, I saved it, I didn't lose it. And of course, the master comes down harsh on him. Uh, elsewhere, where, that, where it's the parable of talents, we mentioned that Sunday, master doesn't say, you lazy slave. The master doesn't say, you misinformed slave. The master says, you wicked, you wicked servant. I entrusted something to you, and you sat on your bum and did nothing. And so I just say that, and it's not designed to, to guilt us into action, but just to be real and say, look, church family, God has entrusted to every one of us a life that possesses time, resources. By resources, I mean your home, your car, money. God has, God has gifted us with talents and abilities. God has allowed us and placed us in vocations, varying family levels. God has entrusted not just all of those things to us, but he has called us to live our lives as ambassadors of heaven in all of those places, stewarding what he has granted to us and being faithful in those individual places for his mission, for his purpose, for his glory. May we not bury it all either because we are scared, which means we misunderstand him. We think we're inadequate. By the way, we are all inadequate. It's why the Holy Spirit's the one who makes us adequate. And may we not bury it distracted and over-busied with just this world. And I don't mean just sinful things. I mean, that you, you can be over busied with things that aren't sinful at all. There's nothing inherently sinful about spending your life going to every national park and hiking every trail. But you can completely and totally waste your life going to every national park and hiking every trail. And so I don't care. Only God knows the calendars on every one of our lives. Not a one of us can do anything to change the days and the years and the weeks that have come. But, oh, especially as we're at the beginning of a year. May we, may we live out the passage Sunday. Lord, what is your will? And may we be faithful. Because it's awesome that passage when the master comes back, what does he say? To the ones who were faithful. Well done, my good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful over a little. Now I will entrust to you much. God has entrusted stuff to us individually, corporately, together as a church. May we be about his will. May we be faithful stewards, good and faithful servants, because it actually does matter. And he really is coming back. And we really will stand before him one day, every one of us in Christ. And I pray that when we stand before him, and according to 1 Corinthians 3, when we set our lives on his altar, that it will not be wood, hay, and straw devoured in his holy fire, that it will be gold, silver, precious jewels that are refined into greater reward. Part of my job as pastor is to encourage you and equip you and pray for you to do that. Part of our job as a body is to encourage and spur each other, one another on to do that, to hold each other accountable, to build each other up, that's actually part of being faithful with what God's entrusted to us because every one of us not only has talents but spiritual gifts that are to be used to build up each other. And so I just ask, plead with you, may you have open eyes and open hands and willing hearts to go, Lord, what do you want? How do you want me to be faithful in the local church this year? How do you want me to be faithful in the places you've placed me outside the local church in the, in the mission field of this world? And may we be faithful because he is abundantly able to do more than all than we ask or imagine. And he is completely and totally sufficient to empower us to do everything he's called us to do. And he who knows what is right to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. And to quote my grandfather, it is a fearful thing to know the will of God and to refuse to do it. May that not be true of us individually or as a church. Let me pray. And by the way, first Wednesday of New Year, I'm letting you out right on time. Maybe the last time for the rest of the year. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for your word. Jesus, you, you made it so clear who you are. You've made it so clear what you came to do. Your gospel message is clear. You've made it so clear, and you've not left us when we hear that call to be faithful. You've not just said, uh, hey, yeah, go, go be busy. And then leave it to us. Lord, you have given us such clear guidelines and ways to order our life and, 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 and such clear truth in your word to know what to go do and be faithful with. So Father, please find us faithful. Please find us faithful not to do stuff for you, but to follow you. Please find us faithful not to build something for you but to build where you lead us to build to build with you. Please find us faithful not to carve out a path that we think is for your glory but, but to walk the path you've laid out for us. The one that you've gone before us in, the one that you go with us in, and the one that you promise you will use your glory to guard our rear. And Father, may we be a church That is all about you and never about us. Because it is all about you. And it's amazing to think that it is all about you. 
yet you know the number of hairs on our head. Yet, Jesus, you know your sheep, and you call us by name. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen.